That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Straight ahead on the Insiders, it's the president versus the four congressional women of color who call themselves the squad. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst said the president's tweets about them were racist. Then Iowa Congressman Steve King criticized Ernst on Twitter. Ernst then responded by criticizing the media. And the Republican state party chair, he stayed silent on this one. So we will get some academic insight into why some people think the president's behavior is racist while others don't see anything wrong with it. Plus, it was Terry Branstead's decision about a man who worked in state government. His case made it all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court, a couple times really. Well, Branstead's no longer Iowa's governor, but Iowa taxpayers could have to pay $6 million or more for that decision. We will talk with the lead attorney, Roxanne Conlon, on why her client, Chris Godfrey, deserved justice for Branstead's move back then and why this case has taken so long. And in the Insider's Quick Six, some numbers and the stories of what those numbers could be. This is the Insider. So back in 2011, when Terry Branstead became governor again, he asked all of his department heads and agency leaders to resign so that he could put in his own people instead of previous Governor Chet Culver's holdovers. Well, Chris Godfrey refused to resign as Iowa's Workers' Compensation Commissioner. The governor then demoted him. He cut his pay to the lowest legal amount for that position. It was about $73,000. Now, instead of saving taxpayers about $38,820, if you do the math here with that move, Branstead could end up costing taxpayers more than $6 million because of the lawsuit that followed. That's because a Polk County jury agreed that Branstead did not demote Godfrey because of performance, as the governor had claimed, but rather because Godfrey was gay. For eight years, Roxanne Conlon served as Godfrey's lead attorney as this case made it through several levels of the legal system in our state. It's one of many intriguing cases she has had over her career, and she joins us now. Thanks for coming back. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm sure you're still processing everything that has happened both this past week and then the eight years to get to yes. this point. But why, why did this case get to where it ended up? Why did it take so long? Mm -hmm. Two trips to the Iowa Supreme Court, both of which we won, one of which has established a very important legal principle, and that is that if the government steps on your rights, you can sue as an individual under the Iowa Constitution. This was, as in many cases, we had a he said, he said here. Governor Not Branstead really. had said, but Governor Branstead had said this was about performance, right? And there were complaints about Chris Godfrey's performance. Chris had said, nope, it's because I'm gay. The governor knew it. That's why he wanted me out. That is not exactly correct. Okay. The complaints about Godfrey's performance were based on the fact that he was following the law, that he was doing what the law must do, which is favor the injured worker. Um, business didn't like it. They talked to Terry Branstead, uh, and he said his defense was, well, I had to get rid of him. I had to try to get rid of him because business told me to. That's not a very good defense. This, this had so many twists and turns through the system. 
you're obviously knee deep in it the whole time. You mentioned that it went to the Supreme Court twice, yes. right? Was there ever a moment where you're thinking, this may not go through? No, never, never. Um, I believed in Chris, I know him well. I think he was objectively the best workers' compensation commissioner the state of Iowa has ever had. Uh, for him to be treated like this was unfair, unjust, and stupid. Uh, you had to make uh, many decisions throughout these eight years, but one of them you decided that Kim Reynolds was Terry Branstad's lieutenant governor back then, but you basically took her out of the process here. Why is that? I took her out because the only participation she had, as far as we could prove, she sat through a meeting that Governor Branstad had with Chris Godfrey in, on December 29th of 2010. Other than that, we had no emails, we had no evidence that would tie her to this decision. How did you prove that it was indeed because Chris is gay that that was the primary reason here? The governor's defense was, I didn't even know he was gay, mm -hmm. but everybody else, I mean everybody else, on his staff, in the state house, and the workers', the workers compensation division, everybody knew he was gay. He was very open about his sexual orientation. You would have to be purposefully deaf and blind in order not to know. And the jury believed that Branstad did know that he did what he did on purpose. You can't get inside Terry Branstad's head, obviously, but no. you did hear what he had said when he was on the stand. And he talked about, obviously he denied this, but he said, look, I've employed other gay people uh, as ambassador in China, we've, we celebrate pride over there. Um, one of his top aides is gay. So how do, you, how do you square that? Why would he do that? Or has he changed? I mean, how do you make well, sense Well, I it? think he's changed. I think that he has, has uh, come to understand that gay people aren't going anyplace. And he has come to believe that that's how we always believed, but that's not true. We introduced the Republican Party platform for 2010, and it said not only no gay marriage, but no gay adoptions, uh, take uh, no gay straight alliances, don't try to teach that being gay is a normal thing. That was in the platform. He ran on that platform. He won on that platform. He disavowed that platform too late. Does this result, and we're still waiting for the final result on this, just depending on what the other side does here, but what do you think this case means beyond Chris Godfrey? I think that it means that sexual orientation can no longer be a factor in employment decisions in the state of Iowa. I was one of 22 states that forbid discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. We mean it. And a jury in Polk County said, we really mean it. Uh, personal question for you. Uh, in the middle of all this, you dealt with some health stuff. I did. Right? Yes. Uh, how do you do that? Not very well. Like <laughs> not, not really not very well. I was poisoned by the air in the Polk County Courthouse, and I had to leave the, the trial. I went to the hospital. I stayed in the hospital overnight, and then I could not go back to the Polk County Courthouse. But you're the lead attorney. I know. That makes it real hard. But the wonderful Paige Fiddler stepped up, and with two days of preparation, began the examination of the witnesses. She tried this case uh, with her own team for, for five trial days. I came back the following Monday, 
and we dried it together to the end. So you're helping from your hospital bed, or how are you ha no. navigating the logistics? Well, uh, I'm I'm reading, I'm talking, I'm uh, you know she's the one questioning the witnesses though, and she has had you know there are two million pages of documents, eight years of motions and the like, and a hundred people on the witness list. So I think what she did was truly miraculous. All right, politics were involved in that. I want to talk a little bit more politics with you. So when we come back here, a few other issues that are in today's politics right now. So we'll have Roxanne weigh in on her party's very crowded, very crowded contest to pick a <laughs> presidential nominee, including more women than ever. We'll talk about that next. President Trump's support doesn't seem to waver. It seems like if you liked him when he became president, you probably still do. And if you didn't, then you still do not want to see him in office. So what does that mean? Does that make him vulnerable because he's not increasing his support as president? Or does it actually mean the opposite here, that he'll win again because basically the same as he ever was? So let's bring back Roxanne Conlon. All right, let's talk politics here because this is something you followed for years. And I realize you've been tied, tied up in court for a long time. So you're not doing the one-on-one -on -one private meetings with a lot of these presidential candidates as you normally would at this point. So you got to play catch up there with this two dozen uh, person field. But what do you make about what you've seen so far? I think that we have the most diverse field of presidential candidates in the history of the United States of America. I think that's a very good thing, but it does make it hard to choose. We have a number of really spectacular women candidates. Um, we have, for the first time ever, a gay man. Uh, and then we have uh, people who are older and people who are younger. And my intention is to meet with everybody before I make up my mind. That would be what I would usually do. This time, I've been a little delayed. But do you really I am want to say that. that you realize there are like 24 of them, I understand right? how, how big your office. Are. Well, uh, we can, we can, we're, I, we, I, meet, I, meet, I would like to meet with them one-on-one -on -one if that's possible. What do you think about sort of this philosophical thing that's going on here, right? You have kind of the far left of the party, and when you go to these rallies, there's so much juice, there's so much energy in those rallies, and then you have some other ones who are kind of be more pragmatic about this, saying, hey, we can't promise everything, there's not anything we can deliver. How does that get sorted out? I think it gets sorted out by listening to what the people have to say. And I think that people want someone who understands them, where they are, what they need, what they want, and that will be the person who wins. The position on the issues will be less important than the sense that people get that the, the person, the candidate, understands where they are and meets them there. You, over the course of your life, have essentially been in every economic class we have, have for the most part, right? <laughs> yes, I have. Because you started pretty rough, obviously. Yeah. Um, where do you think people are in their heads in the Democratic Party economically, and how, how should they view this economy, and what kind of presidential candidate is the best person to speak on behalf, uh, behalf on that? Okay. Well, I think that in their, the, the Democratic Party is the party of working people. We always have been and we always will be and there's nothing like President Trump to prove that. Everything that he has done has benefited the top 1%. The tax breaks, uh, he, he's paying no attention to Iowa farmers. I mean, they are losing markets that they will never regain and he is 
Uh, I'm not sure what he's doing, but whatever he's doing is not working. We do not have a deal with China. And I, my worry is that that will destroy Iowa's economy for all time. For people you've known over your life, is it difficult if you come from a background where you don't have a lot of money or maybe just said, you know, it's kind of a normal upbringing to the point of later in life being wealthy? And I'm thinking of, if you look at like Joe Biden, right? He didn't have a ton of money when he grew up. Now he's doing all right in life. Do you lose that perspective? I think you have to make an effort to keep it. Um, I think that you have to reach out and meet people and listen to people, not talk to people, but listen to people, listen to their concerns, find out what will make them feel like somebody cares, somebody's paying attention, someone understands where you are. Working people now, I mean, they are, they are not in good shape. The, the so-called recovery, which started in Obama, in Obama's administration, and Trump is writing, it, is to the stock market for crying out loud. The unemployment, the, uh, you know, unemployment is down, but mostly because people are working two or three jobs just to make ends meet. That is not the greatest country on earth. Those kinds of values do not, do not speak for us. They certainly don't speak for me. How do you look at women in this race? So in 16, Hillary Clinton had more votes than Donald Trump, if you look nationally, right? Yeah, three million uh, more. Uh, three million more, indeed. In our state, we've seen Joni Ernst get into the Senate, Cindy Axney and Abby Finkenauer into the House. Kim Reynolds is the governor. Is it an additional hurdle to be a woman anymore? I am afraid that it is. I wish I could say that it that it was not, but I believe that particularly for the top job, for the executive office. I think that, jo that, that, uh, that the governor, particularly the top job, it would have been very difficult for Kim to win had she not already been holding the office. I think the same is going to be true of President of the United States of America. I think there will be a hurdle. There will be a certain number of people who will not vote for a woman. It won't be as many as it was when I was running, but there still are going to be people who will feel that they cannot be fairly represented by a woman. I know you said you're still undecided on this. In your gut, do you feel like the nominee will be a man or woman or no idea? I don't know. I don't know. I wish I did know. Then I could tell you. Mm -hmm. True. Thanks for the time. Always no appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All right. Tweets, tweets, and more tweets, right? They started more than a week ago. And here today, we're still talking about them. Probably what President Trump wants here, right? When we come back, we'll take an, a chance to talk to an academic for her view on why some people don't see racism in the president's tweets and his words, while other people are convinced of it. We'll get into that next. All right, if you open the dictionary, here's what you'll find when you look up the word racism. A belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. So that's the dictionary. Now let's get an expert. Dr. Andrea Wilson is an assistant professor at Grandview University. She's the Breda Endowed Chair of Creative Writing. First time on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, we, I wish we could talk about a little more upbeat uh, topic here. All right, to kind of catch us up here, let me put up uh, one of the tweets the president had said that kind of got all this stuff going. So he's talking about these four women of color, these Democrats who are in Congress right now. So part of it 
he had tweeted about a week and a half ago now, viciously, he's talking about them, viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came? Uh, he had also talked about that they originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe now. As you know, three of these four women were born in the U.S. Uh, the fourth one came here as a refugee from Somalia when she was a girl uh, with her family. So they're not foreign-born people here, three of the four here. This has been such a different reaction, right, from a lot of people. Why is that? Why are so, when some people read and hear this, they are convinced these are racist and other peoples don't see that. Other people don't see that message. Why is that? Um, well, I believe that you have pretty much like two type of people uh, when it comes to uh, discussing racism and you're talking about people who are not people of color. Uh, you have people who are, you know, racist and they're like, hey, I know this is who I am and how I feel and I believe in white supremacy or whatnot. And then you have people who just really don't have enough information about what racism is, how it plays out. You know, we all want to believe that we are great people, that we don't have a racist bone in our bodies, like, like Trump said. Um, we all want to believe that you know, we're good people, um, especially if we have religious beliefs that say that we should be good people. However, um, often we do not consider how we were raised, the implicit bias that um, you know, society has uh, given us, because you think about the fact that since uh, the pil uh, pilgrims came to uh, America or the US, um, there has been um, a hierarchy of race. Um, people's lives uh, have not always mattered if they were darker or not European. So because of that long history that we have in this country where people um, who are not white have been marginalized or taken advantage of or um, mistreated or not given certain opportunities, uh, there is an idea that white is normal. And so when that's normal and you never have to think about what disadvantages other people have, it's easy to say, oh no, I'm not racist, but because you really never thought about it. You haven't thought about how you were raised, what things you were taught about being uh, Caucasian and what things you taught about people of color. Okay, I wanna, I wanna play something here. This was from the president's rally in North Carolina this past week, and the crowd uh, was talking about uh, the Minnesota Congresswoman, the, the one who came from uh, Somali originally, uh, Somalia, and they're, they're chanting here, send her back, send her back. This is how this played out. Obviously and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. Ilhan Omar, the Minnesota Congresswoman. All right, you're a student of history because this is what you do for a living and you read and research all this kind of stuff. What, looking at that, what's happening? Um, so in this country, we often are not honest with ourselves about um, who deserves to be here and who doesn't deserve to be here. In all actuality, unless you are a Native American or um, a descendant of slaves, we're all immigrants. So the idea that some immigrants are okay and other immigrants are not okay is something that we live every day. And so that's why we're dealing with immigration issues now. Um, and so basically this comes down to who's okay and who's not. And um, it has become very clear that, 
you're okay if you're from certain countries and those countries are Caucasian countries uh, and countries that um, uh, are predominantly uh, uh, countries of color, um, African countries, Middle Eastern countries, um, you know, South American countries, uh, even Mexico, you know, um, um, you know, all those places, then it, you're not okay. So we're okay with um, people coming from Europe and we don't want to send those people back because those are Americans now. But people from Somalia or Mexico or parts of Africa, um, yeah, those people, we don't, we don't want them here. They don't deserve to be here. And so that's where we get into the racism aspect of it. The fact that race defines who is allowed and who is not allowed or who is welcomed and who is not welcomed. That's why the tweet then becomes racist because there's a focus on uh, countries of color versus just any country or any immigrant. Okay, you're a doctor, but you're also a person of color. Yes. <laughs> so you're sitting at home, this is on TV. Mm -hmm. Are you offended or not? Um, well, at this point, um, you know, as a person of African descent, you get used to it and it's unfair, but living in this country and having to uh, deal with all types of racism, especially institutional racism, um, you get used to uh, being mistreated or people that look like you, um, you know, being, um, you know, basically not having the same, same rights, being second-class citizens. And so, um, especially since uh, the um, election of Trump, we have seen a rise in behaviors. Uh, people, just random people, you know, you can be in Starbucks or JC Penney's and just yell out, you know, go back to your country. You don't even know what my country is. My country is this country. You know, and even if it's a different country, your relatives also immigrated to this country. So that why does that make it okay for you to be here and not okay for someone else? So we've seen a rise of that kind of rhetoric uh, where uh, people of color are being um, targeted for, um, for just, you know, bad behavior, basically. So why? why? Why is that? Because oh. we're seeing, we're, right. there's no doubt we're seeing right. way more of this. And if you start right. looking at the statistics, they back these up. So clearly oh. we're seeing more of this stuff. Right. Well, it's always been here. You know, if, even if we look at slavery, you know, when slavery ended, it wasn't that everybody was on board with that. And so there's always been, um, you know, these ideas that blacks or other people of color are not as human. We're criminals. We're, um, you know, three-fourths of a person. And so those ideas um, have just traveled generationally from generation to generation uh, within certain people. And so um, in addition to that, I think the uh, election of Barack Obama really brought that out because that was one thing that even blacks never thought would happen, that we would have uh, uh, a president that represented people of color. And so I think when that happened, it really kind of uh, stirred up <laughs> those feelings even more so. But even before that, we were still seeing, you know, mass incarceration um, and different things happening to people of color. So this is not something that has ever gone away. It's just kind of changed its colors, but it's always been there. So do you think it, it was there and whether it was Obama, Trump, whatever, whatever is going on, social media, all kinds of stuff here. Mm -hmm. People are more willing to vocalize what they used to whisper about, or is something truly growing? Um, I do think that we are more aware of what's going on, especially with um, the internet and social media, where there was a time where you would have to wait to the local news channels if they chose to film certain things or report certain things, whereas now people can report for themselves. There's more eyewitness things with us having um, cell phones with cameras uh, that can just tell us, hey, this is just what happened, this is how this person got shot. So there's way more um, material available, 
And it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming because, you know, we wanted to believe at a certain point in time that things were getting better. I remember when um, Obama was elected, hearing people say we're in a post-racial society. And I was like, oh, no, no, we're not. <laughs> and we see that that has not happened because even before um, that we were dealing with, you know, uh, you know, the move of Black Lives Matter and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's always been there. I think that it, people have found platforms now through the Internet and whatnot to vocalize it a bit more. And I also think that uh, people are feeling more people on the other side, you know, people of color are feeling more empowered to do things about it because, you know, they are no longer, you know, dependent on white society to survive. You know, they're entrepreneurs. There are people um, who are, uh, you know, in higher positions, highly educated. And so there's more opportunity for people to speak out. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. When we come back, the problem with pills across our country, we're going to look at the five Iowa counties that have the most pills per person. We'll look at those numbers next. I'm going to hit you with a big number here. 76 billion. That is the number of pills sold in our country between 2006 and 2012. A lot, right? Washington Post laid out these numbers after examining the database from the Drug Enforcement Administration. So these are all kinds of pain pills out there. So we wanted to dig in here and see where we are in our state, looking at all our 99 counties. So here's what these numbers show. The most pills per person per year it's way down in the southeast corner of our state in Lee County, 45.2 pills per person per year. Number two on the list would be the state's largest county, Polk, a little bit more than 44. And you have to look up north at Cerro Gordo County, it's about 41. And we go to the southwest there with Union County and finally Clark County right next to it as we look in the southern part of our state, the most pills per person per county. It does, if you look at some of the latest numbers here, it does seem like the country may be finally making some progress on our consumption of these pain pills across our country. All right, the Vilsacks, Steve King's money and a musical prediction. They're all next on the Insider's Quick Six. All right, some numbers are gonna dominate our Insider's Quick Six this week. So first, Number two, that's the number of Vilsacks who hosted a campaign house party in Waukee for Joe and Dr. Jill Biden. There was a lot of praise for the Bidens by Tom and Christy Vilsack. No official endorsement in this presidential race, but definitely a lot of praise. And then later, Tom Vilsack added even more praise for Biden's plan to help rural America. So no endorsement, but it was kind of an interesting night. Second, again, we're going to use the number two here. Two different statements from Senator Joni Ernst on the president's tweets about those four women of color in Congress. Senator Ernst had said at first in that first statement that those were distractions, those tweets. Then in an interview, she quickly said they were racist. And then she had a follow-up in a second statement after Steve King had criticized what she had said originally. Well, then in that second statement, she criticized the media for covering stuff like this. Third, the number zero. That would be the number of statements from the Iowa Republican Party in response to the president's tweets, this King versus Ernst disagreement, nothing from the state party on this. Fourth, about $18,000. That's the cash on hand for Congressman Steve King in the fourth district there. He's been in Congress since 2003. So $18,000 in the bank, not much money at all, very little really. Is he in trouble? Well, Republican challenger Randy Feenstra, the state senator from Hull, 
He has about $340,000 in the bank. It's a big difference. Congressman King has been very popular in that fourth district. Bob Vanderplas just came out in favor of Randy Feenstra. Terry Branstead's put some money behind him, Doug Gross and others. So we will see if that primary contest becomes a close one in these months ahead here. Fifth, the number three. That is the number of women now on the Story County Board of Supervisors. They only have three people. So women make all three of those positions now, now that former state representative Lisa Heddens has joined them. First time they've ever had this. Now our prediction, well, thanks to ousted Iowa Department of Human Services Director Jerry Foxhoven, many more Iowans are probably familiar with the late rapper Tupac. Apparently, Foxhoven liked to listen to his music a lot and email his subordinates about him. And apparently, Foxhoven hopes that Tupac is really still out there alive somewhere if you start reading through those emails that the Associated Press originally uncovered here. Not the sole reason we understand his love for Tupac, that the governor wanted him out of the job, but his employees did get a lot of Tupac, apparently, on the job. That's all we have for the insiders this week. Let's stay connected throughout the week. We'll talk to you next week.